Listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a richer understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little bit better. I'm Kimberly Ford, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, best-selling author, and PhD in literature. And someone who is coming to you today just wondering how it is that it has taken six months, the Fox page has now been on the air for six months, very exciting. Um, apparently I'm celebrating six months by going back to the work of my all-time favorite author, Virginia Woolf. So um, she's, you know, she's right up there with a few select writers. I'm going to, right off the top of my head, Nabokov comes to mind. Um, there, uh, you know, if I had to dig deeper, it would take a little longer. Uh, but Woolf is truly, truly one of my very favorite writers. And I just don't know why it has taken this long. It's also really strange that today we are diving not into the fiction, which is what I like best, but into her nonfiction. So part of the reason we're diving into her nonfiction today is the fact that um, Penguin, is it Penguin? No, Vintage. Oh my God. Wait, I think Vintage might be an imprint of Penguin though. Um, Vintage has come out with these incredible books. Um, They're called Vintage Minis. And um, this one by uh, Virginia Woolf called Liberty was a gift to me from my daughter. And I was so happy when she gave it to me because she was really, really moved by these essays. She reads essays more than she reads fiction, for sure. Um, but this, the essays had really, really spoken to her, really resonated with her in a way that reminded me of myself as a senior in high school when Mrs. Johnston changed my life. I went to high school at Castilea School uh, here nearby in Palo Alto, and I really, really loved it. It was an all-girls school. It was very empowering. Um, I was not the greatest student. I had two C's on my report card, my high school report card, one in French um, and one in, oh gosh, chemistry. I couldn't even remember. That's how um, that's how blocked I am against chemistry in general. Uh, but when I was a senior, our English teacher, Mrs. Johnston, just absolutely blew my mind. First of all, she began with a little flattery. She, at the beginning of the year, told us that she was going to teach To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf and that all of the faculty thought she was crazy because there's no way that high school seniors were ready to absorb the genius of Virginia Woolf. And I am not a competitive person and I'm not like super like accomplishment oriented, but there was something about um, her excitement and and her taking on of the challenge that really um, made me feel like, okay, it's time. It's time to focus. It's time to put away the Daniel Steele, which I had been reading incessantly. And it's time to focus a little bit here on uh, an actual class that I was attending. So we read to the lighthouse and I just couldn't believe it. It was like someone had somehow gotten into my brain and somehow magically knew the way that I thought. They, it was as if Virginia Woolf had um, just just absolutely, like she and I were like twins. We were like somehow weirdly the same person with the same thought patterns. I mean, happily, I didn't have all the same thoughts, um, but actually I had a lot of the same thoughts as a lot of the characters into The Lighthouse, which focuses on children and focuses on, um, you know, that beautiful Prue um, when she's sort of coming into womanhood uh, and, and Minta Doyle when she is having her first romances I mean, this was stuff that my high school self really, really dug into. I actually gave to the lighthouse to everyone for Christmas that year. 
because in my self-absorption as a high school senior, I kept telling people like, you have got to read this book because this is exactly how my brain works. Because I couldn't understand that like, not everyone might wanna understand how my brain in particular was working. I don't actually think anyone read the book. Uh, mostly it was people in my family that I gave it to. Uh, but uh, I mean, I'll check in with them. I don't think so. Um, but I, nonetheless, it, it made a huge impression on me and was one of the reasons uh, why I went on to pursue a PhD in literature. So we are returning today to Virginia Woolf's nonfiction, not her fiction, although there's some fiction coming down the pike. So look forward to that. We are not going to spend any time today on Virginia Woolf's biography, although I honestly could do hours and hours. I could do weeks and weeks of talking about her biography. She wrote so voluminously about her life, and we have lots and lots of her letters and her diaries and her journals. So we have a huge amount of information to draw on, which is awesome. But the only thing I'm going to tell you really is she was born in 1882. Very famously, she died in 1941. It's kind of important to remember she was 59 when she died. This was not like an ultra tragic, like Sylvia Plath kind of moment. Um, she she had not lived, you know, a full enough life, in my opinion, because I think she had some more good writing to do. Um, Between the Acts, which is a, a novella that she wrote right before she died, um, is just incredible. I love it. It's really thought of as one of her lesser novels because it wasn't totally complete, um, but it is really, uh, I, I love it. I love it. I'm a little distracted because I have some dogs over here that are about to start fighting. Um, she was born uh, in a very large family. She had a very uh, commanding father. Her mother was like relatively against the idea of her becoming an intellect, not even relatively. Her mother was really, I think, very worried that Virginia was going to become a blue stocking, which was a terrible thing back in the day. Really felt like Virginia should uh, devote herself to more kind of feminine, womanly things. Uh, Virginia was not educated, although she, um, you know, arguably was the brightest and the most intellectual of her family. All of her brothers went to Cambridge. She um, got some tutoring. I don't know if you can hear that. I'm going to show you. Look at this girl. She knows we're talking about her. Um, so her brothers were all educated at Cambridge. She had some lessons in Greek. She had some lessons um, in Latin. And uh, she read very, very widely in her father's library. He was a, a very scholarly man and very imposing. Her mother died when she was 13, followed quickly by the deaths of her half-sister, who had sort of stepped in a motherly role, and then by her beloved brother, Toby. And then when she was about 22, maybe 21, 22, her father died. So um, it was a decade of huge loss for her. It's also important to remember that she was growing up in the Victorian era. So Victorian England, we're thinking 1850 to 1900. And it was a time of real sort of backsliding for women's rights and a time of real repression and a time of lots of, um, of strictures being put on the lives of women. So um, it, it was a time that, that was very formative for her. Again, she was born in 1882 and certainly her family life was very Victorian, upper middle class, born in London, spent her summers in Cornwall. I'm actually really giving you like a fairly thorough biography here, turns out. Um, but after her father died, she felt um, both guilt and she had a very large uh, breakdown. She's famously suffered from mental illness most of her life. She also famously suffered uh, sexual assault from uh, both of her half-brothers, which uh, is, is very well documented in her journals and has been verified by lots of different sources. 
and must have had a um, you know a very large impact on her life. Then followed by these terrible deaths, the death of her father. Uh, she was on some level very happy to be um, you know out from underneath his really imposing uh, weight, but also of course felt guilty about the fact that she was really actually kind of psyched that her dad was dead. Um, he had put her through um, you know a really difficult time because he never got over the death of his wife and really um, plunged their whole entire home. 22 Hyde Park Gate, which I just actually just got to see for the first time in my life. I was in London a couple of weeks ago and it was so moving. I'll put a picture of it here if you're watching on YouTube. So they had been plunged into this darkness and then famously she and her siblings moved and soon thereafter became part of the Bloomsbury group. So she went from um, a very sort of cloistered existence and a very dark existence in this heavy duty mourning that her father was doing into um, a, a world of intellects. You had um, John Maynard Keynes, the famous uh, economist. You had T.S. Eliot. Eventually, you had E.M. Forrester. You had um, Duncan Grant, a lot of artists, a lot of really important thinkers, all people mostly who'd been to Cambridge, if not Cambridge, then Oxford. And they were all together, and, and her, along with her sister, uh, uh, Vanessa, who was a visual artist, they decided very early on that uh, Vanessa would paint and that Virginia would write. So you have these this very artistic, really um, like an intellectual sort of hotbed. And there was a lot of sexual experimentation and a lot of sort of freedom. Um, many of the men were bisexual, if not homosexual. And there was a lot of um, exploration that was going on. And it was a time, you know, relatively early in the 20th century of a lot of uh, um, free thinking and, and thank God, you know, after this like repressive Victorian era. Importantly, she also lived through both world wars. And those world wars had an enormous impact on literature. We went from realism, which is sort of these bigger novels that are seeking uh, to put everything in them and with these omniscient godlike narrators. Think of Dickens and think of Flaubert and think of um, Steinbeck or Twain, these, these sort of omniscient narrators who have all sorts of control and who um, shape a world that is meant to feel very much like our world, but one that is definitely seen from the outside. When that kind of tidy, omniscient, um, you know, model seemed to not be working anymore because of the state of the world, Wolf essentially, along with other modernists like T.S. Eliot, James Joyce, a little bit later, Faulkner, um, they all really sought something new. That was one of their mottos, is make it new. So this idea of really needing to change the way that, that literature was moving, certainly prose, the way that prose was moving, and T.S. Eliot was a modernist poet, um, American. So he, I think, oh my gosh, he and Ezra Pound, I always get them mixed up, although maybe both are American. I tell you, I'm not a poet kind of gal. I wish I were, I wish I were but I'm not really. So there was all of this kind of burgeoning um, a, a change that was happening in literature. And Virginia Woolf certainly was at the forefront of this modernist movement. That modernist movement, she is again, kind of an archetype. You have a lot of internal monologue. You have a lot of stream of consciousness. 
that was what I was responding to when I was 17. And I was like, oh my God, how does Virginia Woolf understand the way that I think? It was this idea of entering into the consciousness, not just of one person and not as an omniscient narrator, but as someone who is sort of deeply um, ingrained inside the consciousness of, of many of the characters. There's a lot of symbolism and figurative language. Uh, there's a lot of fragmentation. Uh, there's a lot of formal invention. So all of these were things that were a radical departure from realism. Okay, so that has everything to do with the fiction. In 1929, I want to say, Virginia Woolf, who was a very important critic at this point and who um, had done a lot of lecturing, was invited to give a lecture at Newnham College, I'm pretty sure that's right, in Cambridge. So she was never allowed actually to attend Cambridge, but she did um, She did some, some sort of talking there once she was an established person. And importantly, in 1929, she had published all of her really, really important work, or not all of it, but most of it. She had published To the Lighthouse in 1925, Mrs. Dalloway in 27, and uh, Orlando in 28. I mean, that is an insane bunch of years. Fairly soon thereafter come the waves, then the years, and then between the acts. But she had just published those three incredible novels and was asked to give this talk on women and fiction. So this excellent um, little tiny volume here, Liberty by Virginia Woolf, which is this vintage mini, which is just such a gem of a tiny collection. It's so appealing because it's so skinny um, and it's so easy and accessible, and yet it really packs kind of a, a wallop. So it is made up, the, the sort of bulk of it is made up of an excerpt from A Room of One's Own. Uh, I, I would venture to say that it's not even really that controversial to just claim that A Room of One's Own is probably Virginia Woolf's most important work. Um, it, it certainly has had the biggest impact socially. She uh, was sort of an early feminist, um, you know, with some ambiguity in there about her feminine, um, about her uh, feminist leanings. But a Room of One's Own has become a sort of beacon and sort of a, um, a, a like a touch point for a lot of uh, a lot of feminist thinking. Um, it has been criticized, of course, as being elitist and racist, and I think those things stand. But I also think that the value of the work way outweighs uh, any of the criticisms that people like to level. So um, this incredible little volume here is made up of A Room of One's Own, a very short but I think very excellent excerpt from The Wave which was a novel that came out in 1932. Then um, a little excerpt from a book called Street Hauntings and Other Stories. It's a, it's a walk around London, which is so great. And then um, how to read a book or how should one read a book. So it's, it's this excellent sort of smattering of her work, but I think very judiciously, the bulk of the book is about a room of one's own. Before we dive um, right into the volume itself. I just want to mention what good company Virginia Woolf is in. If you're watching on the YouTube channel, I have a very appealing uh, image that I'm going to put up of a lot of these vintage minis all together. If you're lucky, like I am, your local bookstore will have a bunch of these all displayed together. They're so appealing. But again, she's in very, very good company. Um, we have books like Lies, which is by Oscar Wilde, London by Dickens, Parties, by Fitzgerald, which has got to be amazing. Um, a collection called Power 
which is writings of Shakespeare. Um, we have art and religion by people I didn't know, but I'm like, I can't wait to read those things because these are some heavy hitting people. And I like the fact that you have someone like Shakespeare and then we have someone writing about religion whose name was not, um, you know, not that uh, available to me. It's not a name that I knew. So we have kind of a wide swath, not only of people like Charlotte Bronte, who has one called To Myself Alone I Could Look, which is really a, a very compelling title. And then we have, again, you know, somebody like Fitzgerald talking about parties. You can imagine a little bit how that would go, but I like the, the breadth of the collection. So in each of these cases, usually it's a one word title with the exception of that Charlotte Bronte, uh, to myself alone, I could look. The rest of them are all kind of these punchy one word titles that are so appealing. And again, because these vintage minis are so little, it's really like something that you can read uh, not quite in an afternoon, I will say that I sat down and read all of this book yesterday, Liberty, reread it, um, and it, it felt a little long. I mean, these are not like, you know, Power by Shakespeare is not going to just be like a light afternoon's read necessarily, um, depending on who you are. But I imagine um, that, that, you know, maybe two afternoons would do it. As always, I will remind readers that if you want to be a better reader, all you have to do is pay close attention. And always, you should pay attention to the title. I am so interested in, again, these punchy one-word titles that the vintage people have pulled together because it is a, um, it's not obviously a title that has uh, been come up with. Well, that was not a great construction. It is not a title that was thought of by uh, Virginia Woolf. It is in fact something else and they are curating for something specific. And you know, something like Parties by Fitzgerald makes a lot of sense or Dreams by Freud. But the idea of liberty by Virginia Woolf was something that really, um, really sort of uh, intrigued me. I think there are lots of different things that you could, uh, you know, pull out, lots of different sort of themes that Virginia Woolf really mines very deeply. But Liberty was, it was intriguing to me because it's not necessarily the first thing that I would think of. So it's important to note the fact here that we're talking about liberty, not freedom. So this is not just simply freedom, it's liberty. And there's kind of a, a subtle difference there Liberty having a lot more to do uh, with this idea of, of a kind of a lack of restraint, that some sort of restraint has been put over you um, and you are somehow liberated from that restraint of Victorianism. There's an idea of liberation here. Um, and, and importantly, too, this idea of liberty, you know, the pursuit of liberty and happiness or whatever, liberty and happiness for all, um, whatever, whatever that thing, liberty and freedom for all. Jesus, I do not sound like a very good patriot here. Not actually a great patriot right now. I mean, I think that's actually just like, I think a lot of us can say that right now. Um, but this idea of, um, of liberty as being, you know, like a really, really big call to action by the French, you know, the idea of liberty, fraternity, and solidarity. Is that it? Um, mm, society? I can't remember. I, mm, mm. Liberté, égalité. Oh, not even when I do it in French. Sorry, guys, can't can't think of that right now. But importantly, liberty has a political, um, you know, it's like a really important political touchstone in lots of ways. Um, but it's important to have that idea of it making a real break. So 
This idea of lack of restraint can be seen in certainly in a lot of her politics, um, but also it is really important to think about her as being liberated from restraints in terms of her own education and reading. She was desperate to go to school and was not allowed to go to school, but in many ways it allowed her to, to, to sort of be liberated from curriculum and uh, to, to really read very, very widely. Um, she was. She also was sort of free of a lack of restraint in, in terms of society. So you know, she lived um, in, in a very unconventional way with a lot of people, almost communally. Although she mostly was living with her brother Adrian when she was with all that Bloomsbury set. But she had um, a marriage that was also um, not sort of according to the normal restraints. She had relationships with women. Uh, notably Vita Sackville West, that were sort of not in line with societal restraints on sexual preference. And certainly, certainly her prose has everything to do with not following restraint and not following rules and not being confined. Um, it is a very liberated prose in the sense that she has thrown off all sorts of convention and really truly is making something new. So I actually love the idea of liberty. I, I think it's, um, it's actually, at first I was like, I'm not really seeing the connection here. And then very quickly, um, I, I had a real sense of, of the importance, in fact, of this title and, and, and really the, the, the sort of merits of it. So now we're going to dive into the text. So as I mentioned, the bulk of this little book is taken up with an excerpt from a couple of excerpts from A Room of One's Own. And I think it's important to have a little bit more context than this book gives. You know, you don't you don't miss anything, but I think if you have a little bit more context uh, in general um, when you're heading into this text, I think it's, it's, it's a more effective reading experience. So I'm going to go ahead and read a couple of things that are from A Room of One's Own. And again, this is um, a, a, a series of lectures that she delivered over two days at Newnham College in Cambridge. She was 46 years old at the time, and again, really at the height of her powers, and, and really, really very well esteemed in terms of her literary output, already seen as kind of a superstar. One of the things that I absolutely love, and you'll see right away, when I start reading, is that um, her, even in this, even in this lecture that she's giving, her approach to prose is so different than, than sort of male approaches to prose. It's not um, a lecture where, you know, you're sort of setting out a bunch of ideas in a very linear fashion and you're seeking to prove a point and you're using a lot of sort of standard classic rhetoric. Um, it, it doesn't feel as, as sort of linear and as, as in fact, restrained. You know, it's very much like this idea of, of throwing off these restraints. So there's much less restraint and a lot more fluidity. And in fact, in many ways, uh, uh, the essay, A Room of One's Own, does in fact feel more like some of her fiction prose. In fact, there are parts of it that are fiction and she plays very nicely, I think, with the idea that, that fiction sometimes can deliver a, a truth that is in fact more valuable and more truthful than it's simply a, a list of facts, quote unquote facts that may or may not in fact be true. So it's a really, really beautiful and unconventional approach to essay making. I think it's actually really um, good to remind ourselves of how the essay in fact opens, the first of them. There's six chapters in, uh, in the sort of collected uh, publication that grew out of these lectures. So the title obviously is A Room of One's Own, and you really need to read that title as, a, uh, as, as the first sentence 
of this essay because in fact um her very first line the first like actual line of the essay is in response to this title so the title is a room of one's own the title of her talk and it begins like this but you may say we asked you to speak about women and fiction what has that got to do with a room of one's own so right away, we, we have a reminder of the fact that her, her task today is to talk about women and fiction. And, and yet this idea of a room of one's own, um, you know, we now, uh, you know, in this modern day, we understand the link. Uh, but, but then it's a very kind of interesting way to suck the reader in because a room of one's own, I mean, you can start to make, uh, you know, conjecture about it. But the idea is how do women and fiction fit together with this idea of your own room? She goes on to say the following. I understand the first duty of a lecture to hand you after an hour's discourse a nugget of pure truth to wrap up between the pages of your notebooks and keep on the mantelpiece forever. All I could do was offer you an opinion upon one minor point. A woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. And that, as you will see, leaves the great problem of the true nature of woman and the true nature of fiction unsolved. So I love this. I love this concept of, you know, she has this one point and she does come back to it again and again and again, this idea that a woman has to have money and has to have space. And by a room of one's own, she means um, a lot of different things, but it's important to remember, she's not just talking about the physical space. She's talking about uninterrupted time. She's talking about solitude. She is talking um, about the space, you know, this idea of having certain, you know, basic needs met, sustenance, um, you know, not having to work really hard. And, you know, again, I mentioned that there's a lot of elitism that sort of leveled at her, but it is very clear. And, and she makes different points through here about how, you know, there's certainly geniuses in the middle class, but if you have to work really hard, you are not going to be able, in fact, to, to write fiction, first of all, which is kind of, uh, you know, somewhat trivial. And, and in fact, in Virginia Woolf, hierarchy, uh, fiction is certainly below poetry and is also below, um, you know, nonfiction, things like biography and criticism and essays. So you have this sense of, you know, if you want to write fiction, which is kind of this, this kind of, you know, luxury, that you certainly have to have a bunch of needs met. So it's not so much that she's saying that, you know, people in the middle classes can't write. What she's saying is they don't, in fact, have enough leisure to write, which I think is pretty incontrovertible. So um, it's this very important point she's making that she returns to over and over again. But what I also love is this very sort of, um, you know, she's asked to write about women and fiction. And in some ways, she's, she's talking about how preposterous that idea is, that the idea of explaining to a group of women, so everybody there in this audience at Newnham College would be a woman. The idea of explaining, you know, what women are and what fiction is and what women in fiction together might possibly mean um, is just sort of not very practical. So she's she's really done both things. She's given us this, this um, you know, this very clear message that she returns to about money and space and time and freedom and, um, you know, basic needs met. But also this idea uh, that, that some that she's not going to be able to come up with some sort of tidy conclusion. In fact, she goes on and says, "I have shirked the duty of coming to a conclusion upon these two questions. Women in fiction remain, so far as I am concerned, unsolved problems." 
So right at the beginning, this is all in chapter one, this is the beginning of uh, a room of one's own. She's very clear about the fact that some of these, um, you know, some of these issues and some of these questions are, in fact, unanswerable as far as she is concerned. Um, we have her uh, continuing. When a subject is highly controversial and any question about sex is that, one cannot hope to tell the truth. One can only show how one came to hold whatever opinion one does hold. One can only give one's audience the chance of drawing their own conclusions as they observe the limitations, the prejudices, the idiosyncrasies of the speaker. So you can imagine that I also really like this because it's the perfect defense against this idea that, you know, oh, we should discount her writing because she was anti-Semitic or she was racist or she, I mean, we should, you know, those are those are problems with her writing, certainly. But she is very clear about some of her biases and some of her limitations. And 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 she is, in fact, saying these are these are things that you need to know. So she's upfront about them. And then you are to make your own conclusions. So then she says something very important as far as I'm concerned. Fiction here is likely to contain more truth than fact. So I, I like this idea. Um, people have taken this out of context and I think taken it a bit too far, but there really, really is something to this. If you imagine a man um, who was going to get up in front of men at Cambridge, which nobody ever would get up and talk about women in fiction because it simply was not important. But if one were to do that, you can imagine the sort of facts and the kind of truths that that person would try to put forth. And what she's saying is that we, we, we have to sort of dream up a scenario which she's about to do in order to get at the truth of, of sort of women and fiction. So she says, therefore, I propose making use of all the liberties and licenses of a novelist to tell you the story of the two days that preceded my coming here. How, bowed down by the weight of the subject which you have laid upon my shoulders, I pondered it and made it work in and out of my daily life. She then goes on to tell a very famous um, anecdote about how she was sitting trying to think of what she was going to say about women in fiction. And an idea came to her. She was sitting on a on a bank of a river at Oxbridge, um, Oxford and Cambridge. And uh, an idea came to her and she quickly got up and was moving across some grass and was told by a beetle who's like a, an officer at the college that she's not in fact allowed on the grass and she needs to get on the path which is such a beautiful, in fact, and such a symbolic thing. You know, she's sort of going, um, she's making a shortcut, she's going, she's breaking some of the conventions, she's going through kind of a natural way, and she is told, in fact, that she needs to get on this path. She needs to sort of follow, um, you know, the same path that everyone else is taking and, and not sort of be off in the wilds of the grass. And of course, she is chastened. Soon thereafter, she's not allowed into a library because you had to have a letter or you had to be accompanied by a um, male member of Cambridge in order to get into a library. So she's sort of chastened and these ideas fall away from her. So this idea of not belonging in the college is very central and so she has this narrative about, um, and these very sort of novelistic descriptions of her experiences that, that really do speak to a truth about women and fiction and about the ways that in fact, women have not been allowed into academia, which of course would sit, I think very, uh, you know, sort of resonantly with these women who are in fact uh, students at Newnham College.
this idea of this sort of iconoclastic woman, this radical woman, is a very good segue into um, our little uh, our little edition here, Liberty. So what we are diving into when we first start reading this book is in fact chapter three of A Room of One's Own. So. Um, she talks, she does kind of like a little recap, uh, and we're going to take a look at that. Perhaps now it would be better to give up seeking for the truth and receiving on one's head an avalanche of opinion, hot as lava, discolored as dishwater. It would be better to draw the curtains, to shut out distractions, to light the lamp, to narrow the inquiry, and to ask the historian, who records not opinions but facts, to describe under what conditions women lived not throughout the ages, but in England, say in the time of Elizabeth. So this is such an incredible opening. Um, what we have here, it's really, I mean, every piece of this is so well wrought. So we have this um, incredible use of metaphor here. She's beginning, she's reminding us of this notion of, of the truth, um, but then she's leading into these really dangerous and kind of um, uh, this drastic, metaphor here, an avalanche of opinion hot as lava. So it's funny because it's a mixed metaphor, obviously, an avalanche is snow and lava is, is obviously very hot. So you have um, these extremes that she is conjuring because you can imagine um, that, you know, if you're looking for the truth of women in fiction, you would have very, very strong opinions. But then she moves into this incredible domestic uh, metaphor here with the dull as dishwater. Is that what it says? Discolored as dishwater. So you have this idea then of, of moving from this very kind of like huge, like, um, you know, act of God kind of huge uh, events down to something like dishwater. So it would be, these opinions would be drastic, but also in fact, dull and discolored, importantly. Um, then she goes on about maybe it would be better. And we have some more kind of domestic things to draw the curtain, to shut out distractions, to light the lamp, um, which which are, are somewhat um, you know domestic, and we have this sense of setting the scene, and then she's moving toward this historian. So obviously, a historian in this context is going to be a man, and that man is going to you know this is like historian with a capital H and history with a capital H, and certainly that man is going to expound on um, you know a, a, a history that is full, in fact, of of men and of the stories of men and of war and of politics and and sort of these um, you know quote-unquote manly type of things. But what I love is that is that Virginia then, Virginia, I'm talking about her like we're, we're just like buddies. Well, actually, we are kind of buddies because she literally knew how my brain was working when I was 17 and has continued to know for so long. Um, but so she is ending with this idea of Elizabeth. So we have this whole, like, we've gone on this journey with her in this one thing about truth. We've, we saw lava, we saw an avalanche, we saw dishwater, we saw the curtains drawn and the lamp lit, we saw this old crusty historian, and we have ended with Elizabeth. So um, it's a little arbitrary, you know, she's saying, how about instead of just trying to look at all women, let's focus on this one, you know, time period. And in fact, she's saying, say, let's, let's just think uh, maybe, you know, maybe about 
Elizabethan England. So it sounds like kind of like she's just like making a random decision there. But in fact, obviously, the idea of focusing on Elizabethan England is very important. And we're going to find out why as she moves into the next paragraph. It's very sly. And the rhetoric here is so good. Um, you know, you could criticize her for being like, okay, let's not look at like all women in history, although she then goes on to do exactly that, which is masterful. But she's beginning with Elizabethan England. And the reason why she's doing that is because of Shakespeare, obviously. But before we get to Shakespeare, we we're beginning with Elizabeth herself. So Elizabeth um, was the queen of England from like 1550 to 1600, basically. I think of her then and I think of Victoria as 1850 to 1900, just to simplify my life. But I think those are actually pretty accurate. So Elizabeth was known as the Virgin Queen, very famously. She was kind of moderate, but she was a very important queen in that she um, made a lot of, uh, uh, you know, she, she like ruled very actively. She refused to get married. She refused to have children. Um, and in fact, in lots of ways, was criticized for, for acting very sort of manly in, in her domestic life and certainly um, as, as sort of ruling in a way that was not necessarily really aggressive, but certainly more, um, more in line with the kings than in fact with some of, of the queens. We have this idea of ending this first paragraph with this really, really strong monarch. So we have this evocation of Elizabeth. And it's not even Elizabeth in England. It's like Elizabeth herself. It's such a strong thing because immediately, and certainly if you were British, you would have this kind of um, th this sense of the strength of a woman. Then very quickly, we begin to talk about Shakespeare. And then we have what is a fictive thing. And we're not going to dive into this too deeply because um, we, I mean, gosh, it, we really have a lot to say, people. Um, but what, what Wolf does so beautifully is imagine that, in fact, William Shakespeare had a sister. And as soon as, um, you know, she enters into this thought experiment, we are all entering it with her. And there are a lot of novelistic sort of elements to this that are so compelling. So she has this really excellent um, you know, description that, again, is very novelistic of William Shakespeare. And we can see him standing at the stage door and the fact that, um, you know, he was a little bit of a ne'er-do-well, but he certainly had gone to school and he had some money and he wanted to go to London and he practiced his arts. And you have this whole idea of, of um, like him being out in the world and you're, you're really caught up in it. And then we have this sort of really deflating line about how Judith would have had to stay home. Then, of course, we have Judith um, venturing into London. And again, we have this really beautiful and very novelistic rendering, which I actually do want to take a very brief look at. She had the quickest fancy, a gift like her brother's, for the tune of words. Like him, she had a taste for the theater. She stood at the stage door. She wanted to act, she said. Men laughed in her face. The manager, a fat, loose-lipped man, guffawed. He bellowed something about poodles dancing and women acting. No woman, he said, could possibly be an actress. He hinted, you can imagine what. She could get no training in her craft. Could she even seek her dinner in a tavern or roam the streets at midnight? Yet her genius was for fiction and lusted to feed abundantly upon the lives of men and women and study their ways. And then a little further down, Nick Green, the actor manager, took pity on her. She found herself with child by that gentleman, and so, who shall measure the heat and violence of the poet's heart when caught and tangled in a woman's body? 
killed herself one winter's night and lies buried at some crossroads where the omnibuses now stop outside the elephant and castle. So this is just, it's, I mean, this is a very, very dense and really rich and beautiful uh, paragraph here. And it tells so, so much. I mean, the, the evocation again of this Nick Green, interestingly, um, there was a guy named Robert Green who was in fact like a theater guy and like a, um, an important um, dramatist. But Nick Green is actually a character in The Waves, which is really um, important. The Waves is not published yet. It's gonna be published three years later. But this idea um, of, of Nick Green, he's so vivid. He's a fat, loose-lipped man. And we see him guffawing and bellowing and talking about poodles dancing. So we have all of this guffawing and bellowing is such a, it's such a um, efficient and amazing way to, to tell us so much about him, sort of the way he is in the world and how he's sort of ribald and larger than life. And also the way that her aspirations would be received. And we have this really, really genius thing. Um, Nick Green, the actor manager took pity on her semicolon. She found herself with child by that gentleman. It's immediate. I mean, it happens so, so quickly in a way that is so like she, you have that little semicolon, the sentence isn't even ending. And then we have her with child. So a lot of the concerns here are simply about her safety. It just would have been impossible for her to go and have dinner in a tavern. It would be impossible for her to roam the streets of, of London. So there's a constraint here on her physical safety uh, that, that's very, very real. And of course, you know, we're talking about sort of 1600, but that same, uh, that same constraint, you know, is alive and well today and, and one that Virginia Woolf is evoking so well. And then here right away, we have this young woman getting pregnant and we have her, um, you know, committing suicide. It's so stark and it is so well done. And again, we have this novelistic approach that is yielding a, a you know, a, a truth, a quote unquote truth in a way that, that I think, you know, someone who's using facts, um, which in fact don't exist. And she makes a big point of that. We don't have any facts about what life was like in Elizabethan England. Well, we have, probably have some, but not many, um, as she tells us. We don't have many facts about life in Elizabethan England. And, and frankly, um, reading a book like Hamnet, incredible book by Maggie O'Farrell, um, is going to, in fact, for me at least, impart more kind of truth than, I mean, I would want some facts too, frankly, but it's a really beautiful way to give certainly an emotional truth. And what she does here is lay out essentially an argument in really vivid terms that I think are really convincing. It's also interesting to remember Virginia Woolf, because of some of her mental illness, um, decided that it was best. And I think doctors told her that it was best that she not, in fact, have children. And um, I, I don't I, I actually don't have a real I don't have a strong sense of how she felt about that. I know that she was a very devoted aunt and was very, very close to her nieces and nephews and was very good with children, at least with those children. Um, but and I also was so curious about um, birth control. I was like, what is happening here? And I think you could make the argument probably that she and Leonard, who had a really unconventional and a very strong and a very supportive marriage, um, were probably not having a lot of sex. That's documented. Um, she actually, when she first meets him, she like is repulsed by him. I think that's the word. Maybe reviled. I don't know, but it was not good. Um, and poor Leonard, like he just seems like such a good guy. So she is in fact, you know, repulsed by her husband. So you can imagine that there's not a lot of sex happening. She 
also is very attracted to women, which we see echoes of in a lot of her fiction, certainly in Mrs. Dalloway, and certainly her biography and her, her relationship with Vita Sackville West really speaks to that, uh, to, to that sort of desire. So, um, but I was so curious, apparently um, in this era, in the 19, you know, 20s to 40s, I actually looked up birth control in England and it was a lot of condoms, something called a pessary, which sounds awfully like um, like a cervical cap, like these kind of, um, or a diaphragm, these sort of obstruction methods. So obviously no birth control pills. And in fact, a lot of couples during that period from 1920 to 1940 were practicing a lot of abstinence. Um, like I think abstinence was, you know, it, it, like it was defined as six months or more of no, uh, of no sexual relations. And one in 10 marriages were like very clear that that was something that they were engaged in simply because they were worried about pregnancy. At least that's what they told the, the um, interviewers. Who knows what was actually happening behind closed doors? You know, one never knows. Um, but Virginia Woolf um, here, this idea of as soon as Judith is pregnant, Judith Shakespeare, her life is essentially over. She also goes on later to talk about the women writers, um, there's this beautiful conceit where she's standing in front of this bookcase and she's looking for women writers through the ages. And she's very relieved, in fact, when she gets to the modern writers. And the writers she's looking at, you know, the Brontes and Jane Austen and George Sand, and not George Sand, George Eliot. Um, I always confuse those two also. Um, these, the, all of those writers, also Margaret Cavendish and also Dorothy Osborne, all of the different people who's writing uh, Wolf holds up later, these living women who she holds up as, or, or recently uh, deceased women, who she holds up as, as sort of paragons of, of literature and really beginning to write in a way that is different from men and a way that's very, very important. None of those women had children. So she is making the argument, again, this is part of a room of one's own, that, that, that they're sort of mutually exclusive, that you cannot in fact have, uh, you know, have a lot of um, uh, uh, involvement with children. In fact, she had this beautiful thing about how it was very easy to understand why the Elizabethan women were not uh, writing a lot because all you had to do was look at all of the, the gravestones for children and understand how dark and cramped those rooms were. So she's extending the metaphor all the way back then and essentially talking about being a mother and, and in, a, in, you know, in a time when being a mother was also very difficult and precarious because everyone was dying of the plague um, and also these, these cramped quarters and darkness and, and just life, in fact, being much more difficult and not providing the leisure, even if you are a higher class person, um, not providing the leisure in in fact, to write if you are a woman. I want to cover two things uh, sort of quickly before we move on from A Room of One's Own and talk briefly about The Waves and then the final uh, closing of the book. So um, after Virginia Woolf has been standing in front of this, uh, this bookcase, again, this is a very sort of novelistic way to get at the truth, to sort of station herself and, and, and give um, like a scene for all of these young women to picture, um, you know, with these empty bookcases where women's writing should be, she gets to a point where she talks about the differences between men and women writing. When I was in graduate school in the late 90s, this 
this was like such a topic. I mean, it was this whole thing about women's writing and feminine writing and writing from the body and all of these differences. And and um, it was hotly contested. And I think it's it's kind of a hard argument to make, especially now that we understand that that gender is much more fluid. But I do think, you know, there is a lot to be said for writing about sort of women's topics, things like, you know, domesticity and more about relationships. And to that point, Virginia Woolf uh, makes a really good um, sort of comparison that I was so happy to sort of come upon again. So she's talking about a man's sentence. She says, in fact, the sentence that was current at the beginning of the 19th century ran something like this. The grandeur of their works was an argument with them not to stop short, but to proceed. They could have no higher excitement or satisfaction than in the exercise of their art and endless generations of truth and beauty. Success prompts to exertion and habit facilitates success. That is a man's sentence. So I love this because um, it's very, you know, you have this they this and they that and it's making these broad proclamations and you have this um, omniscient narrator who is speaking in these very general terms about uh, beauty and art and uh, truth. And it's very sort of, um, you know, abstract and very sort of elevated in its diction and certainly in its its rhetoric and in its structure. And I want to contrast it with uh, Persuasion, the beginning of uh, Jane Austen's Persuasion, because that is the book that Virginia Woolf is looking at, and it's the one that she herself is comparing. So she talks about this sort of men's writing, as she says right here, that is a man's sentence. And then um, she doesn't give an example. I, I pulled it from, from the bookcase. Um, but we have, in fact, a, a counterpoint in the writing of Jane Austen, and it's so beautiful. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull it right up for you. Sir Walter Elliot of Kellynch Hall in Somerset was a man who, for his own amusement, never took up any book but the Baronetage. There he found occupation for an idle hour and consolation in a distressed one. There his faculties were roused into admiration and respect by contemplating the limited remnant of the earliest patents. There, any unwelcome sensations arising from domestic affairs changed naturally into pity and contempt as he turned over the almost endless creations of the last century. And there, if every other leaf were powerless, he could read his own history with an interest which never failed. So I found this so amusing. Part of it is um, we have, we're narrowing in on this one man, Sir Walter Elliot. He is, uh, you know, some, he's, he's like a sir, you know, he's a, he's a, like a um, lord or something. I don't really know how all that stuff works. Um, and, but he, we have this kind of um, poking fun of him. It's this one very specific character and we see him in a, in a scene, you know, where he's sitting and he's reading from this one book and, Jane Austen, it's this very tongue-in-cheek thing where she is making fun of the way that he makes himself feel better, which is often to sort of, um, you know, revel in in the shortcomings of other people. And this simply the idea of his self-absorption, his own sort of history is so entertaining to him. So you have this idea here, instead of making these big proclamations and instead of making these kind of like wide-sweeping truths from this omniscient narrator, here we do still have an omniscient narrator, but it's moved very closely into the perspective of this one man, in fact, almost sort of entered into the consciousness of one person, and in fact is also poking fun at him. So you have a certain remove, and and a, you know a lot of the novel is sort of like making uh, making 
a perspective known. So in this case, it's very revolutionary of Jane Austen. This is not an omniscient narrator who is totally neutral. This is one that's actually sort of making fun of its subject. So you have this distinction here that I think is so well drawn and so interesting. And if we get back to this idea of women and fiction, obviously one of the big ideas is like, do women write differently than men do? And Wolf is arguing that in fact they do, not just because they're looking at drawing rooms and domesticity, um, and, and looking at the, the sort of lives of specific people and, and their relationships with each other, which is exactly what we're seeing here or beginning to see in persuasion, whereas men at that time, um, you know, in the, the 18th and into the beginning of the 19th century, it was all about the enlightenment and it was about hierarchy and science and, and truths and, um, you know, facts. And so uh, th there's a very different sense here. And Wolf makes a very compelling argument too, that if her writing, if any writing feels revolutionary by a woman, it is because of all of the women who have come before. So this is a very good segue into uh, the last part of what I um, want to read here from A Room of One's Own. So after Wolf has talked about Jane Austen and the Brontes and, and uh, different women writing in the 19th century, she is very happy to move on to someone uh, who is in fact still living. And it's a, a writer who is not known to us today named Mary Carmichael. And it's really interesting because Wolf is diving into this book and, and really sort of testing a lot of her own theses that she has sort of made during uh, the course of her talk. And it's a lovely and, and just it's this kind of exhilarating thing because at one point um, she comes across the sentence, Chloe liked Olivia. And you have this idea of, of her really bringing into academia and into this, you know, sort of paper that she is delivering, which should be like a very buttoned up academic thing. She's bringing in this idea of, of love for a woman or love between women, which is so well done. In fact, she's very sort of um, talk of tongue in cheek. She's very sly about it. So this is Wolf talking about her experience of reading Mary Carmichael. She must jump and determined to do my duty by her as reader. If she would do her duty by me as writer, I turned the page and read, I am sorry to break off so abruptly. So you have to imagine that she's, she's talking about the experience and then she's breaking off and she's apologizing to the room of women. I am sorry to break off so abruptly. Are there no men present? Do you promise me that behind that red curtain over there, the figure of Sir Charles Byron is not concealed? We are all women, you assure me? then I may tell you that the very next words I read were these, Chloe liked Olivia. So I love that, this idea of, of you know, she's sort of making sure that we, that, that she is among women and then she is, um, you know, sort of revealing this really important, I mean, talk about a truth, you know, this really important, um, you know, idea that, that lesbian love, that gay love, homosexual love between women has just entered, um, you know, very sort of forcefully into uh, this piece of literature by a contemporary in the beginning of the 20th century. It is so well done. And I love how immediate that classroom or that you know lecture hall full of women uh, comes to life. So she talks a little more about Mary Carmichael and how um, these women, Olivia and Chloe, in fact, are in a laboratory and how amazing that is too, and all of the advancements that, that Mary Carmichael is making. And in fact, uh, she closes this chapter of A Room of One's Own, it's not the end of the whole entire essay, but it's the end of this chapter with the most beautiful paragraph. Here it is. She's talking about Mary Carmichael. 
Give her another hundred years, I concluded, reading the last chapter. People's noses and bare shoulders showed naked against a starry sky, for someone had twitched the curtain in the drawing room. Give her a room of her own and 500 a year. Let her speak her mind and leave out half that she now puts in, and she will write a better book one of these days. She will be a poet, I said, putting Life's Adventure by Mary Carmichael at the end of the shelf in another hundred years time. So I loved this for so many reasons. I mean, this is 1929 that she's delivering a room of one's own uh, to, to this audience. And here we are, you know, almost a hundred years later, and we really do have this huge amount of writing by women. And we've really very clearly come to realize that, you know, we need to listen to all women and all women's voices and all different forms of expression. Um, I think it's funny that she's like, maybe then women can be poets because, and we have amazing women poets, don't get me wrong. Wrong. Um, but for me, I'm like, mm, I don't know. I'm not sure that I, uh, you know, ascribe to this hierarchy where somehow being a poet is better than being a prose uh, writer. Although, I mean, I think people do think that a little bit. It just the question is whether or not there's much of an audience for poetry anymore, in much the same way that there isn't one for like epic poems and there isn't one for written plays, you know, for drama. So, like Shakespeare's kind of drama. Um, so we have this really, really beautiful idea of her ending this chapter and the people at Vintage as ending this chapter with this very forward-looking idea. Um, I'm just going to touch very briefly on the idea of the waves, and I'm going to skip over the London, uh, the, the street haunting part, although it is so beautiful and, and so evocative and interesting. It's really cool to read one of her essays after having, um, you know, absorbed a lot of this theory. Um, and then we're going to look very quickly, uh, we're going to read an excerpt from the very, very end of this tiny volume. But I want to touch briefly on the waves. Part of me was like, why why are they picking this and not, um, not one of the sort of more canonical texts because the waves is so fragmented and so kind of tricky in some ways i mean it's not it's not like a super difficult text but there are many many voices and it in some ways is more experimental and and more dense and more fragmented so i was kind of like i don't really know why they chose this and it's going to be really hard to find you know a six page excerpt from the waves that is is sort of comprehensible and that really shows virginia wolf's strengths and yet they totally did it these vintage people really nailed it so what they did here is we have two young women uh, and, and we have this beautiful uh, example of modernist writing and you get so swept up um, no pun intended. You get so swept up in the kind of current of the story. And it's a very short excerpt, which I also think is excellent. But it, it's so cool to finish up this, this really um, deft, I think, curation from A Room of One's Own, and then to, to really immerse ourselves again, water metaphor, um, to immerse ourselves for a very short while in this very experimental prose that really is a, a, a very, very important, um, you know, uh, instantiation of women and fiction. It's just beautifully, beautifully done. Highly recommend. Don't skip the part about the waves. Um, and then we have the street haunting, and then we have uh, the ending of the book, which is a, um, this is also something, I might have a copy of it right around here somewhere. Um, this is another uh, essay that was kind of pulled out and made its own gift book. Um, I learned 
back when I was when I was doing some writing um, that there's something called the gift book, which is a short thing that they put on those tables for like, you know, dads and grads in June. That's a total thing. Like you can't have a book come out in June unless it's either about Father's Day or um, something a dad would like or something a graduate would like. So um, this idea of the gift book, um, there is in fact a very nice volume called How Should One Read a Book? By Virginia Woolf. And it's actually, it's lovely. It's very good. And I like these kind of bite-sized chunks of her writing because in fact, these larger collections, I think can be a bit overwhelming. Um, so I'm going to read the very first opening of How Should One Read a Book? Um, this comes from The Common Reader, which was published in 1932. In the first place, I want to emphasize the note of interrogation at the end of my title. The title is How Should One Read a Book? So there is a question mark at the end. In the first place, I want to emphasize the note of interrogation at the end of my title. Even if I could answer the question for myself, the answer would apply only to me and not to you. I love the direct address there. Um, it's whenever a writer talks about me or I, there's always an assumed you. There's always an assumed reader, but I love it. I get a little frisson when, when in fact um, the writer talks about you directly. The only advice indeed that one person can give another about reading is to take no advice, to follow your own instincts, to use your own reason, to come to your own conclusions. So I love this notion so much. And I like to think here at the Fox page, I mean, it truly is like one of the joys um, of my whole entire life being able to read so broadly and so widely. My degree was in Spanish and French literature. I got to immerse myself in, in you know, writing from all over the globe in just like the most delicious way and with a lot of depth for a many, many years. It was so great. Graduate school was so great. Um, but I also love this idea now with the Fox page of being able to read even more broadly. I mean, honestly, anything, anything that catches my eye. So I also think it's a little ironic that here I am, um, you know, this is a, a podcast or, and a YouTube channel that is seeking to, um, you know, to help you become like a better reader. And basically what I'm saying is like, nobody should tell you how to read. But she says, um, just a very, on the very next page, how are we to bring order into this multitudinous chaos and so get the deepest and widest pleasure from what we read? And I would argue that the answer to that question is the Foxed page. Um, so again, this idea, I mean, I'm, I'm jesting, I'm jesting, but I also am not. I'm also really honest here about the idea of, you know, the, the whole point of what we are doing here together Partially, it's just to share the experience of a text and just to know that someone else has had the experience that you have had. But also, it is really very much about this idea of like, how can we fully understand? I mean, we can't fully understand anything we read, but how can we really most sort of um, deeply and most richly apprehend and comprehend what it is uh, that we are reading? Okay, so um, she's talking about the multitudinous chaos of literature and how can we absorb it. And, and part of it is really parsing it and rereading it and listening to someone um, talk about it. And I want to close with this beautiful paragraph that Virginia Woolf um, is offering up to us and that the good people uh, at Vintage have curated for us. It's just a, a really, really beautiful way to end uh, this talk. Yet who reads to bring about an end, however desirable? Are there not some pursuits that we practice because they are good in themselves and some pleasures that are final? And is not this among them? 
I have sometimes dreamt, at least, that when the day of judgment dawns and the great conquerors and lawyers and statesmen come to receive their rewards, the Almighty will turn to Peter and will say, not without a certain envy when he sees us coming with our books under our arms, look, these need no reward. We have nothing to give them here. They have loved reading. Oh my God, love it so much. Love it so much. I'm going to just leave it there. Thank you so much for tuning in. And um, I really, really have appreciated this opportunity to do this little deep dive. I mean, I think actually this should be the first of many. I feel like maybe there should be like a little playlist on the YouTube channel for uh, vintage minis. That would be cool. Let's see if I do that. Um, but in the meantime, enjoy uh, this talk on liberty and get yourself straight back to the Fox page. Find yourself something else to uh, watch on the YouTube channel or uh, to listen to in the podcast form. Happy reading. <laughs>